Kolobinaka. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. Coming up. The Tongan government and consul have had to step up and had to figure this out. A church group attempting to flee Israel is disappointed in the New Zealand government's lack of urgency. Also, Australians are leaning towards rejecting Indigenous voice in an upcoming referendum. And later... We're staying connected, but also we're knowing our job and our role. A new rugby league competition is kicking off in the Pacific. A Tongan New Zealand church group attempting to flee Israel is disappointed the New Zealand government is charging people for a repatriation flight which doesn't bring them back home. The Tongan ethnic group is made up of 45 New Zealand citizens, some elderly, including one who's battling cancer and in need of medication. The government has secured 90 seats on the first flight to assist New Zealand and Pacific nationals to leave Israel, but it comes at a cost. Alicia Foon spoke with Therese Laulu, a close friend of Bessie Sikalu, a 26-year-old member of the church group who's in Israel. The team is in a hotel in Tel Aviv. They're about 20 minutes away from where they're launching rockets, so at the heart of um, the war zone. Are they safe? I'm not actually sure because I haven't heard back from her. But she did message me this morning um, saying that they were saying that they were okay, they're safe. They've got um, some outers with them who are sick and um, need medical like assistance. So I think they're more worried about like you know the outers in their group that are, are needing this uh, medical attention. They said that they have plans to hopefully leave tomorrow with the Tongan consul just because they said that they feel like what MFAT and the New Zealand consul have offered up as an option for them to fly out isn't actually feasible for them. Let's go into that. What is yeah. what is the repatriation flight option that MFAT have put on the table? So MFAT have offered them flights from Israel to Abu Dhabi but they've told all New Zealand citizens and residents are responsible for their own travels from Abu Dhabi home to New Zealand. Any costs incurred while they are in Abu Dhabi, like accommodation-wise, um, travel costs, that will fall on, fall back on the person. Yeah. So I have the email that was sent to the group here. It says, there will be a charge associated with this flight and you will need to sign an undertaking to repay before boarding the flight. So yeah. there will be a cost to actually get on the flight. Yeah. And then once people get on the flight, they're not coming directly to New Zealand. They will be landing in the UAE. And so they need mm. to meet the UAE entry requirements. But not mm. only that, they will have to make their own onwards travel arrangements from Abu Dhabi. So when yeah. MFAT talks about a repatriation flight back to New Zealand, do you think that's good enough that they're, they're offering essentially a flight halfway to the Middle East um, and not back home to Aotearoa? No, absolutely not. I think... In this state of like emergency, this is actually a crisis. The very least they can do is to bring them home to New Zealand. It's just so disappointing that the Tongan government and consul have had to step up and had to figure this out for New Zealand citizens and are offering to pay flights for them home all the way back to New Zealand from um, Israel. And this is coming from a country that is 
has far less resources and manpower than New Zealand does. I don't think this is a resources issue because if a small island nation can do that, we can definitely do that. I think it's more a prioritisation issue and that New Zealand government and a consul are just not taking this matter as seriously as they should. That's how I feel. And that's how the group is feeling as well. Um, just reading a quote from what my friend had said this morning, she was saying that um, the Tongan consulate has been a pillar of strength for us in these times. The feel of the timers was staying in high spirits and doing our best to remain hopeful and prayed up about the situation. But it's the Tongan consulate who that has kept them reassured throughout this entire um, situation and not the New Zealand um, government. Super grateful to the Tongan consul and the government for their, you know, generosity and love. But that that job isn't theirs to do. That should fall back on the New Zealand government. Is it Mm. true that there is a member who was based in Germany from the Tongan consulate who flew to Israel and is actually with the group now and guiding them out? Is that correct? Yep, that's true. When the Tongan consular, our consul heard that this was happening and that there was a, a group of uh, New Zealanders who are Tongans stuck in Israel, he flew out immediately, um, has been on the ground with them for days, trying to help them and figure out safe passage for them home. And so like that, he acted immediately, which is what we've been urging the New Zealand government to do. But it's been like, you know, their response to fly people out to Abu Dhabi, that was their best solution they came up with in a few days. That's just, it's just not good enough. Does the group have travel insurance? And if not, um, would they be in a position to be able to afford these flights back? Mm. Um, I'm not entirely sure if everyone in the group has travel insurance, but, you know, these flights cost thousands of dollars. I don't think many of them are in positions to be able to fork out that money to pay for their flights home. That response was is definitely made for more privileged people and backgrounds, which is just like, you know, really worrying because you think these are the types of people that are creating solutions for us, are people that are very disconnected from a lot of real uh, people living in real life situations. I think they're just adding to the levels of stress of, you know, more than helping them. Like, yes, we've got this flight for you, but you've got to pay for it and you've got to, you know, jump through more hurdles to to be able to be on this flight. You know, the flight isn't even guaranteed seats for everyone. So there's another thing. And they're not even sure when the next flight, you know, is available. It's just, honestly, it's just, it's frustrating. I think what has been, like, one of the worst experiences was is definitely knowing that our friend is there with her with her dad and um, their elders. Like, there's a whole group of them. It was just feeling very helpless and feeling like we weren't being heard on this side when we were trying to communicate the urgency of this situation to the New Zealand consul. That was like one of the hardest things for us because it was just like incredibly frustrating trying to tell them, look, we've got New Zealand citizens are trapped and trying to communicate like how urgent it was for them to act immediately. And just having the response from the New Zealand consul was like they didn't really care or it wasn't really a priority on their list. That was the feeling that we got, and that was the feeling that my friend and her father got as well as the group. So that was probably one of the hardest things, was just feeling like we had no hope and feeling like we had no support from this end. Island nations who have less resources do everything they can to get their citizens out. Like, it's just 
and you and you see us and we're just chilling and sitting back and you know we're gonna go through a hundred million processes before we can actually do something like it's just so disheartening you start to lose faith in the government that you'll you know pay taxes for that you've like contributed so much to you know your whole life A Papua New Guinean academic based in Australia says a no-vote outcome in the voice referendum on Saturday will be a setback for Australia's country-to-country and people-to-people relations in the Pacific. In a nutshell, the government is asking the Australian people whether they agree to recognising the first peoples of Australia in the Constitution by establishing an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Some Pacific leaders have voiced a keen interest in the outcome of the vote, saying it would have an impact on how Australia is viewed as a country in the region. The University of Canberra's Dr. Mount Karma is a practicing lawyer and assistant professor at the Faculty of Business, Government and Law. He spoke with Kuroi Hawkins, who began by asking where the Pacific's interest in Australia's referendum stems from. Well, the Pacific interest in the referendum stems from the historic, cultural, human relationships that has already uh, has been established between the Pacific people and the indigenous people of Australia. Prior to the modern state, when uh, colonialism came onto their lands, both Pacific and Australia's First Nation people were colonized, and Pacific became decolonized, became independent, and their voices were given space. They became represented in their governments and the decision-making, whereas when they look to their neighbour, the First Nations of Australia, they didn't have the representation that the Pacific people had. So there was always this interest in the in the affairs of Australia and how they treat those First Nations people. Now, um, we've had a few Pacific leaders speak up on this on this issue, um, and sort of tying it to the way Australia is seen on the international stage, but more so regionally. What are those comments and and where do where do they sort of fit into this whole picture? Those Pacific leaders that spoke about it, I think did a, did a good thing in letting Australia know that Pacific is not quietly watching, but Pacific is interested in their leaders who are standing up to talk about it. I think what it portrays, although those, those leaders were only a few of them, it should remind Australia that what is happening now for its own Indigenous people will have a reflection of how Pacific view the Australian society and how they respond or treat or respect the First Nations among them. And I think for Australia, this, uh, this, this really means that its uh, position within the region is not separate to the Pacific. And so the, the people in, in Australia need to make a decision that can ensure that Australia's respect is maintained and that Australia is seen as a society that embraces and gives the opportunity in the forum to its First Nation. Because treating them right here would send a message that they could also be treating the Pacific right. The um, latest poll out on the possibility mm. is showing that a, a no vote is more likely than a yes vote at this point in time. Mm. Um if that ends up being the outcome of the of the referendum, what what is it that Pacific leaders are, I guess, on the other side of saying that it would be good for Australian international relations to have a yes vote? What is what is the alternate to that in the event of a no vote? It will be, I think, a setback in the way Australian society uh, 
uh, is viewed as as uh, treating its indigenous people, especially in this in this in this day and age. There is a movement towards uh, elevating and hearing out and giving prominence to vulnerable groups, but also minorities. Uh, and indigenous people have been part of that. So Australia's a no vote would be a step back in that direction of uh, human uh, sense of emancipation journey that we have seen around the world. Yeah, so as for, as, for, as for Pacific, while the result will not have any major impact on the existing relationship as we have it now, what it will project to the, to the people at a more grassroots level is that Australians have decided not to give prominence uh, to Indigenous people, people that look like them, that live in Australia. Um, so that, in some ways, would uh, make people on the ground have two minds about dealing and talking and sort of relating to Australia, knowing that their own Indigenous family uh, are not treated in the way that they would expect. So I'm not sure how this would play out practically, in fact, but that, that perception for any Australian dealing in the, in the region, that's a perception that they would have to encounter. Um, for Pacific Islanders sort of trying to understand the discussion, are you able to break down for our listeners just what is the referendum actually about? Okay, so the referendum, Australia, in order to change the constitution, unlike many other Pacific countries, only Fiji, in fact, has some aspect of referendum in their constitution, whereas all the other Pacific countries in order to change the constitution, to bring something into the constitution or to amend it, only the parliament decides on it with specific way of going about voting. Whereas in Australia, any change to the constitution is by referendum, meaning the people, the 26 or 29 million people of Australia will have to vote, who are eligible of voting, will have to vote on that. Now, there is a framework on how that voting would happen, but essentially the changing of the constitution must go back to the people to vote on whether or not that change should happen. The voice referendum is a proposed constitutional amendment that is brought by this government, the Labour government, in order to, uh, or that seeks to create a special body called the voice that deals with indigenous, the Aboriginal, the Torres Strait Islander people, the First Nations, as they, as they call it here in Australia, those people that were in Australia before the settler colonialists came onto the land. And so the voice is meant to give them, these people, a greater say in the affairs that govern them, rather than leaving it to parliament. Uh, this voice would be a body of people that would also contribute directly to parliament and influence the policy decisions concerning. Right? Previously, that hasn't happened. Previously, there's commissions being created, but those commissions were subject to ministers of government. They were under the control of ministers of government who are mainly or has always been white Australians. So the voice of the indigenous people hasn't really gone directly to parliament. So this voice is now saying, or is now wanting to create a direct voice to parliament. So that amendment now is to the people to decide, which will be the voting Saturday. And the voting will decide whether the Australian people would accept the amendment, creating a body that will give, that will carry the grievances and uh, thoughts and feelings of the indigenous people directly to parliament or to deny that body and remain as it is. 
where their voices are carried by ministers. Often then, that, that doesn't happen. So that's essentially what voice voice is. Balkama, thank you too much for time, Blue. Um, Barava, good too much for story and for giving out insights, Blue and wisdom, Blue. Thank you too much. Thank you, Wanto. Reuters reported that according to the final poll by YouGov published on Thursday, those opposed to the proposal lead the Yes camp by 56% to 38%. Some 6% of those polled were undecided. YouGov polled 1,519 voters for the survey. Although Pacific countries don't experience high levels of criminality, shifts in transnational dynamics are changing the region's organised crime landscape. Organised crime can take many forms within the Pacific region. On the surface, it may appear that the region is faring well. However, in addition to drug trafficking, low-tax jurisdictions such as Vanuatu are vulnerable to money laundering. Elsewhere, such as in the Marshall Islands, human trafficking is an ongoing risk. An independent, not-for-profit organisation is hoping to change all that. Joining me on Pacific Waves is Virginia Komoli, head of the Pacific Programme at Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Kia ora, Virginia. First of all, can you briefly explain what the Global Initiative organisation is all about, please? Sure. We are a civil society organisation, a not-for-profit and we have been around for 10 years uh, doing primarily two things. One, we conduct research and analysis on different uh, organized crime markets and different criminal actors. And we also work uh, through our resilience, resilience fund closely with civil society organizations that operate on the ground in emerging and developing countries. And we uh, support them in their work within uh, local communities with the aim of uh, increasing those communities' resilience to organized crime and the harms associated with it. Great. So as the head of the Pacific, I understand you spent some time in the region earlier this year. What were some of the things that you noticed there that made you think, hmm, we can really make a difference here? Yes. Um, when it comes to discussions around organized crime, oftentimes the, the Pacific and Pacific island countries are overlooked in international discussions. And that is because compared to other regions of the world, for instance, neighboring uh, Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, levels of criminality are, are lower. However, that does not mean that criminality isn't there. And actually what we have observed uh, through our own work and through my, uh, my trips across the region and just really by talking to experts and people on the ground is that the criminal landscape is changing uh, quite considerably and that has been happening for, for few years, for the past few years now. So we've seen an increase in the number, especially of uh, foreign um, actors, foreign criminal groups and individuals, but also uh, foreign businesses that are operating in island countries that are engaged in uh, criminality from uh, um, activities linked to the logging and mining and fishing sectors to human trafficking, drug trafficking, and also increasingly also uh, cyber, uh, cyber crime. From what you've just mentioned, do you think then organized crime is a growing problem in the Pacific? Uh, I think it is, and I really think it is driven by a number of factors. Some have 
are related to a global dynamics to uh, link to globalization, increased connectivity, greater ease of movement. So it's easier to uh, to conduct trade, but that is both true in the case of the legal trade, but also illegal trade. And then there is also the fact that um, places such as Australia and New Zealand have very lucrative drug markets, so the demand for drugs, especially methamphetamines, is, is high, and, uh, and Pacific Island countries have increasingly been used as transit regions. And what we are seeing that is very concerning is that whereas up until relatively recently, uh, those drugs were only transiting through the region. Now we are also seeing some uh, consumer markets developing some island countries such as you know, Fiji or, or Tonga. And that, of course, is very problematic from a point of view of um, public health and also crime trends within those, uh, those island countries. Why do you think then people turn towards the Pacific to undertake their cr- criminal activities when it's the last place you think... Um, you know, such behavior will take place. I mean, location-wise, we're quite far from big developed countries. Our islands are small. Pacific culture is very much embedded in family values. I mean, yeah, why would people target the Pacific? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Well, one thing is, yes, is the actual increased connectivity. Of course, some of the islands are still uh, in quite remote places, but now they're better connected than they used to be. Uh, The other thing is, uh, the um, the Pacific Islands sit along some well-established trade routes, so they've seen you know transit points for all sorts of goods for a very for a very uh, long time. Uh, the other thing is that because some of the islands uh, are uh, so uh, remote, they've attracted some in, people who have been in trouble with the law elsewhere in the world, who have thought of relocating to some of the islands as a way of. Uh, uh, of escaping uh, law enforcement. There was an interesting case, for instance, in Vanuatu, where these uh, British-American uh, art dealer who had scammed uh, people for millions of dollars worth of uh, uh, fake art deals, he had basically escaped and he was hiding, hiding in plain sight, I would say, in Vanuatu until eventually was arrested uh, a few months back. Uh, so uh, there is also an increased um, uh, number of countries and companies that are establishing their activities uh, across island countries, especially uh, to uh, to take advantage or to get involved in the natural resources uh, sector. And oftentimes those activities are marred with illegality. And I'm thinking about illegal logging operations, illegal mining, but also illegal fishing. And, um, and, and you know, there are vast natural resources that in, in the region that are very attractive to these, uh, to these actors. So how can global initiatives support local stakeholders in the Pacific to become more resilient to crime when someone like yourself, please forgive me for saying this, um, don't, don't have lived experience in the region? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. You know, we have uh, uh, years of experience in other parts of the world and, and we are now expanding uh, our work in the region. And for that reason, we want to uh, work in a very collaborative way with uh, local uh, civil societies and, uh, and local organizations and, and, and governments when appropriate uh, to contribute to their efforts. We very much work in partnership wherever, wherever we go. 
and, and we would adopt a different approach uh, depending on uh, on the context. For instance, we would have programs in Mexico that are very different from some of the programs that we have in West Africa, and we will have you know very different approaches in the Pacific. Uh, we, and in order to design those programs, we'll be very much um, guided. Uh, by uh, local voices and for us uh, being um, inclusive and really being guided by Pacific, Pacific voices is paramount. Wonderful. And what's been the response so far from the Pacific communities towards global initiative? So far it has been uh, positive. Uh, it's been a great experience for me traveling uh, to different Pacific Island countries as well as to Australia and New Zealand and uh, introducing ourselves and trying to understand really where the uh, gaps are, where the uh, in terms of uh, analysis and understanding, but also also in, in terms of uh, capacity to tackle some of these uh, challenges. So I think uh, there is a role for us uh, to play, and we are very uh, keen to find find the best way to uh, bring our contributions in a manner that complements existing efforts rather than duplicate what other organizations are already doing. Awesome. And what will you be doing on your next trip to the Pacific? Well, one area that we are very uh, interested in is to do with uh, uh, illegality within uh, the extractive industries and you know natural resources, how they impact uh, indigenous communities, how they impact the, the economy, but also how the uh, corruption that is enabled through uh, the, the, the revenues generated from, from these activities is actually impacting uh, governance. So these are some of the areas that we are very uh, interested in exploring and bring our contributions in. Thank you so much, Virginia, for your time. That's pretty much the end of our interview. But is there anything else that you'd like to share? Well, just that we are very eager to engage with as many stakeholders as, as possible across the different uh, island countries and uh, across the different sectors. Uh, and, and we are uh, very eager to engage you know, beyond also the, the themes, as I mentioned, related to uh, environmental crime and the extractive industries. Uh, there are other issues that often intersect with for instance, the logging or mining, such as uh, trafficking of, of persons and also uh, exploitation of local communities, including sexual exploitation. And we are we, we really strongly um, have a, 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 a track record of, of studying, you know, the convergence of different uh, criminal activities. And, and we, uh, we, we, we hope to, to be able to do so in the Pacific as well, because we want to really put the... Uh, the, the well-being of local communities at the heart of what we are doing. A new rugby league competition is kicking off in the Pacific this weekend. The Australian Rugby League Commission says the inaugural Pacific Championships is the perfect way to foster the growth of the international game in the island nations. NRL boss Andrew Abdo says rugby league is the game that brings us together and a language we all understand, regardless of our culture and heritage. Christina Persico looks at the tournament. Sports fans have been glued to the Rugby World Cup in France, but meanwhile, its sister code is about to kick off a new tournament, the Rugby League Pacific Championships. The first two games of the tournament, which is hosted across Australia, New Zealand and Papua New Guinea, are rematches of the respective 2022 League World Cup finals. 
On the women's side, Australia and New Zealand kick things off at 6pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Saturday. The world champion Kangaroos take on Samoa later that night. But Samoa winger Murray Tolungi, who has recently switched allegiance from Australia, says they are focusing on themselves, not on revenge. No, nah, not really. We're just sort of worrying about ourselves at the moment and we don't know who's playing for them and where they're going to be playing at. So right now it's all about ourselves and our own mentality and just preparing right for ourselves. The tournament runs for a month and the Men's Pacific Cup sees the three highest nations compete against each other, while the Men's Pacific Bowl is a competition between the three lower-ranked nations. Who is in which tier will change year on year, depending on world rankings. The Women's Pacific Cup competition has the Jillaroos and the Kiwi Ferns playing each other four times over the next two years, with the third match being alternated with a Pacific nation. The Women's Pacific Bowl competition includes two test matches, with a goal to increase that number. This time around, it's Fiji against Samoa and PNG against the Cook Islands. Fiji Bolikula assistant coach Shane Morris says for them, this is step one towards making the next World Cup. Oh, you know, we're focused on what we can control. That's about us. You know, we're focused on what we can, what we can do. And that's making sure we're controlling the ball, making sure we're getting out the advantage line and making sure we're completing our sets. But also, in, in attack, we're staying connected, but also we're knowing our job and our role. If we can work on those things, you know, we're going to put in a good strong effort and that's our building base for the World Cup. This is our step one to getting there but also it's making sure that we are putting the best team on, on the ground on Sunday to represent Fiji. Meanwhile Tonga is in the UK for a three test series against England with the first match kicking off at 2.30am on October 23rd Tonga time. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rndi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to Fasui Forum.